Welcome to Let's Hear It. Let's Hear It is a podcast for and about the field of foundation and nonprofit communications, produced by its two co-hosts, Eric Brown and Kirk Brown. No relation. Well said, Eric. And I'm Kirk. And I'm Eric. The podcast is sponsored by the College Futures Foundation, which envisions a California where post-secondary education advances equity and unlocks upward mobility now and for generations to come. To learn more, visit collegefutures.org. You can find Let's Hear It on any podcast subscription platform. You can find us online at letshearitcast.com. You can find us on LinkedIn and, yes, even on Instagram. And if you like the show, please, please, please rate us on Apple Podcasts so that more people can find us. So let's get on to the show. Hello, friends, and thank you for listening to Let's Hear It. During the holidays, we're re-releasing a set of some of our favorite and your favorite episodes. In this episode, we bring you my conversation with Chanel Matthews, who's the founder of the Radical Communicators Network and former communications director at the Movement for Black Lives. And she's now a distinguished lecturer at City College at the City University of New York. A great conversation about power, communications, and narrative. And we're back for another episode of Let's Hear It. Welcome in, everybody. Glad to be here. Glad you're joining us. And uh, the trade of hits keeps coming, Mr. Brown. This is this is one of our greatest hits that we're about to listen to. Can you uh, tell us? <laughs> Every what? hit is the greatest hit. This is a great hit. This is a, I have much to say about this. This is a great hit. It was this was I interviewed Chanel Matthews. I, I w- I'm going to go down her list of accomplishments, and it is really impressive. She is the founder of the Radical Communicators Network, which is an organization of communications people who are working on progressive issues. And uh, she started this in the aftermath of the 2016 election because she wanted to do something. She has uh, she was the director of communications for the Black Lives Matter Global Network. She is an adjunct professor at the New School. She has worked in communications jobs at the Sierra Club and at the ACLU, and she is really one of the most thoughtful people on issues around race and communications and narrative change and working together to try and solve problems that I've met. And what a cool conversation. Amazing discussion. I think everybody's going to love it. Um, can I just go through some of the touch points in terms of getting in touch? Because you do this at the end, but you know, so uh, the website for Chanel is hellochanel.com. Oh, um, and that's right. I forgot. Yeah. She also has her own communications practice she called does. Hello Chanel. That's right. She's got her own practice. Um, I do want to take her class at the new school. It sounds amazing. Uh, Radcoms, w, uh, radcomsnetwork.org is how you get involved in there on Instagram and Facebook as well. Two other pieces. Thank you, Chanel. She's writing a book. Yes. I can't wait. You broke that on the podcast. That's right. We broke it forward. And then finally, uh, Radcom's doing a conference later this year in California. So I would just I would just put that out on everybody's uh, radar screen that once you listen to the conversation that's ahead, you may be inclined to go to that conference. So um, agree. Chanel Matthews, thank you so much for joining us on Let's Hear It. Let's give it a listen and we'll come back and we'll talk. Welcome to Let's Hear It. My guest this week is Chanel Matthews, and I've been actually dying to meet you. Because I've been following you on Radcoms, and you have, I think, created a community of communicators. And it's not just your ordinary run-of-the-mill community of 
communicators. These communicators are special. Um, so thank you for that work and thank you for coming on the show. This is this is exciting. We are sitting here in the green room uh, at the Frank Conference. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. I don't know where to begin to go through your resume because you have a lot of hyphens in it. You are a consultant, a, a professor. You teach at the new school, is that right? You are a leader and a convener and all these, these other things. How did you... Uh, how did you get here? Not how did what plane did you take or what route did you take to get to the back room here at Frank? How did you get to this place? That's an interesting question. So it was nonlinear. I think for most of us in strategic communications work, that's true because although this capacity has existed in social movements and in the professional sector for a long time. It's just starting to be codified, really, in social movement spaces now. But I went to journalism school, like a lot of us. I went to LSU. At the same time I was in journalism school, I was an organizer on campus. And so I come from Los Angeles, a very liberal, progressive place, to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and found myself in this interesting political predicament where I didn't understand some of the social circumstances that were happening there, but I was infuriated by them. For example, they were still flying the Confe- they are still flying the Confederate flag on campus during game day. And, and other days. The Women's Center was infested with termites and was falling apart. The African American Cultural Center was being temporarily shut down with no, no information about when it would be back up. There was no ADA compliance in most of the buildings because it was considered a historic campus. So there were all of these fundamental injustices happening on campus, and I felt so frustrated by them. And at that time, I didn't know anything about what organizing was. I just knew that I wanted to make some, some changes on my campus. I was also writing for the paper. I was writing in the op-ed section this column called Ready for Revolution, where I talked about the lack of retention rates for black professors and other professors who are non-white or women professors, where we talked about Planned Parenthood on campus and what it meant for people to have access to choice. And so, but eventually I was fired from the Daily Reveille, even though I was writing in the op-ed section, the editor said that I had organized a protest against standardized testing in Louisiana that was incredibly discriminatory against black students. And I, it made the news and he said, you know, you're not supposed to be making the news. You're supposed to be writing the news. <laughs> but Too I, opinionated for the op-ed. Like, but I, it's, an, it's an opinion, you know, column. And it's, so anyway, so that, so all that to say, how I ended up here is that I, I found the newsroom to be incredibly reductive and limiting. I didn't want to sacrifice my principles or my ethics for journalism, for the, the farce of objectivity in journalism. So some years passed and I learned that you could do communications work, you know, the work that I had been doing around um, messaging and sharing my ideas on campus for nonprofit organizations who shared my values. And so in 2011, I took my first nonprofit communications job and I've spent the last you know, nine years working as director of communications, as a communication strategist, a consultant, uh, an associate. I mean, I've, I've held every single role. And it, those roles and the the loneliness I felt in them, the lack of understanding, I didn't, you know, I didn't go to school to learn how to do strategic communications. There was no course to take on it. And I had so many questions and I felt so much shame for all the things I didn't know and I didn't know who to ask. And what I wanted was a community of practice, a place where I could go and ask people, what is political messaging and how do you do it right? And how do I know if I'm successful? How do I manage to talk to the base while also inspiring the prospective base to join us? I just didn't know where to get those answers. And there were these one-off classes I could go to, but none of them felt whole. 
So the Radical Communicators Network, I founded in 2016 after the election. I was frustrated like everybody else, and I wanted to know what those of us who are working in social change communications were going to do, what we thought our responsibility was over the next four years to ensure that Trump didn't get reelected. And so I made a call on Facebook just after, maybe a few days after the election, and I said, where are you, people who do this work, who work in digital and strategy and polling and persuasion and message development? Can we get on the phone and talk about what our role is? And we did. And it was three years in last November that we celebrated uh, at Radcoms. We have 1,400 members now. And it's been an incredible space of learning and growth and a shame-free and judgment-free space to learn. It is. Um, and, a, and a good old-fashioned listserv. Mm-hmm. And a good old-fashioned listserv. Yeah. <laughs> You're using old-school technology to teach or to, to exchange new ideas. Yes. What, what do you get from this community? What do you learn from them? I learn a lot. I I say I'm like a hu- on a very human level. Um, I learn how to be vulnerable with people who I have. I'm building political power with. At the end of the day, yes, we're all professionals and we're doing a job for our organizations or for our clients, but we are trying to move people along a political spectrum from one idea to the other. That is hard work, and we have to do a lot of listening and understanding. And so, to me, that starts with the community of practice that you're working with. Can we understand each other? Can we see each other's humanity? Can we get clear about what we need? And can we ask hard questions so that we can do this work? The other thing I get, professional growth and development. Strategic communications is so incredibly important to social movements. It determines what people know about different ideas and different groups of people, how they act in relationship to those people and to to democracy and the systems that we're all bound to. And so we're teaching each other how to do our jobs well, how to understand different communities. As a black woman, doing this work, also something that's very important to me is to insert a racial analysis into strategic communications work. We don't get to talk about the the politics uh, that exists in this country without talking about race. And so this group does that, not just for people of color and black people, but for people with disabilities and people who are migrants and um, people who are living in poverty. And we have those hard conversations about how to serve the most vulnerable people. And that is something actually I never found in any other communication space. And that was that's why the grassroots aspect of Radcoms is so important. And I get a lot from that. There was even a challenging conversation this week yeah. on the listserv, which I feel that they are engaging with each other with respect and they are willing to say something when they see something. It's a little like being on the subway and but I do believe that people are having productive conversation. And it is hard to talk about race. Yeah, it is. People don't know how to do it. It's hard for them to do it with authenticity. Yes. And I, I experienced that. So I was just going to ask you about this particular issue since we're, yeah. you've called the question or someone called the question. Can you just describe what that conversation was like this week? What were the, yeah. what were the terms? What happened? I'll just, I'll preface this by saying the listserv is made up of communication strategists from all different sectors and people with varying levels of radicalism. Right. Some people much more on the far left and some people who are just dabbling. So we often have a a variety of perspectives on the listserv and that is what makes it valuable. It also makes it challenging. So one of the members was looking for I think the title of the message was looking for an African-American household name. And she was working for a client and the story was embargoed. And so she had to be very brief. But nevertheless, her the tone that she used in the message really rubbed a lot of members the wrong way, me included. Ultimately, she had divulged that, you know, she has a client who's an ancestry kind of will help you figure out who where you come from. And they have been challenged 
in that they predominantly work with white groups. And they were looking for somebody black to take this product into the black community and say, we have this product. And ultimately, people responded and said, this is tokenism. That is what this is. And they did, they defined it for her. And I, you know, I called her before I responded on the listserv because to me, the way that we help people shift their thinking and change their behavior is not by shaming them. It's not by making them feel afraid. And we know that as communicators, but when it comes to interpersonal stuff, it's like we just forget that information. I truly believe that every person has the right to feel how they want to feel when they see something like that that feels offensive or even racist or racially charged or prejudicial. And I think that this woman did not intend to offend by any stretch of the imagination. But if I'm being fair, she also didn't respond well. Mm. She didn't respond well when people said, hey, this is this wording of this is tokenizing black people. This approach is is part of the problem. We have to actually shift the systems. This company needs to take responsibility for building relationships with the black community. And then somebody who's a part of that community will come and say, you know, I want to be an ambassador for your product. And that's how that works. It doesn't work by saying, let's find a black person who's popular and make this product popular with them so other people get and, and that there's a danger to that. And this is a on a small scale, but it happens on much larger scales too. And it's, it creates a passive energy among the base and allows people with power to continue to wield that power in really challenging ways. So you know, I, I think what I learned from that experience, one is that I have a responsibility as the moderator and the founder of that group to nip that stuff in the bud when I see it, but to also handle those situations with grace and care because I don't believe in cancel culture. I don't think that somebody saying the wrong things means that they're automatically out. I can't see how that's productive in any way. I also think that this person who was white has a lot of work to do around seeing and understanding how her biases or prejudices or her blind spots even could unintentionally or unintentionally harm people around her. It's easy to go to a defensive stance. We all get that. Nobody wants to be called out for being wrong about something, right? It's like in our reptilian brain, when we're ashamed or afraid, it's the same thing as like impending doom or impending physical fear, right? We just get freaked out. And we have to learn to control that, tap into our nervous system and understand how to say, you know what? I see what you're saying. I apologize. I'm going to go back and figure out how I don't do this again. Then we can all open up and say, we bring our defenses down and contend with it. But the last thing I'll say is that I think that it's hard in professional associations, which Radcoms is one, to find the space to talk about these things in a way that allows everybody to feel heard and seen. It is not an easy thing to do. Um, but I am committed, and the leadership team of Radical Communicators Network is committed, and the membership, I think, to finding ways for us to connect to our humanity while we're doing this important work around strategic communications. Because to me, they are intertwined and they never won't be. I applaud you. You didn't take down the posts and say, let's, you know, that's, that's inappropriate. Just take it down. You had the conversation. How did it turn out with this person? Is, is she still engaged? Yeah. I mean, I, I think so, you know, she, it felt to me, she could not hear us. She didn't feel like she did anything wrong. She, she, she felt like she wrote a badly worded post, but ultimately she thought that our addressing it was a bullying of her. I, I found and uh, which she shared and I'm, I was disappointed to hear that because it wasn't and in, in, you know multiple people did address it with her and that can feel hard to hear but if you've written to a list of 1400 people every person has a right to say something about that I let her know there wouldn't be any repercussions and that she'd be asked to leave the listserv no I mean she's still a member and that, to me, that wasn't the, wasn't the most important thing. The most important thing was that she understood the impact of her actions and was able to address them so that she could mitigate that harm in the future. And I'm just afraid to say I don't think that that happened. Uh, 
Well, on that on that little note, we're <laughs> going to take a break and, okay. and think about it all and be back in just a second with Chanel Matthews. You're listening to Let's Hear It, a podcast about foundation and nonprofit communications hosted by Eric Brown and Kirk Brown. Let's Hear It is sponsored by the Stupski Foundation, a foundation returning all its resources to the communities it calls home in Hawaii and the San Francisco Bay Area by 2029 to support just and resilient food, health, and higher education systems for all. Because change can't wait. Learn more at stupski.org. We are also sponsored by the Conrad Prebis Foundation. Check out their amazingly good podcast. And we're not just saying that. Stop and talk. Hosted by Prebis Foundation CEO Grant Oliphant. You can find them at stopandtalkpodcast.com. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Let's Hear It. My guest is Chanel Matthews, consultant, teacher, and runner of an old school listserv that with, uh, with some new school ways of thinking. Um, welcome back, and thanks, thanks again for being here. Boy, oh boy, we're going to have this conversation for a long, long time. H- how did you get to this point in your thinking? I mean, it's probably not a straight shot from w- looking at Confederate flags at LSU to trying to have a, a, a really nuanced, I would dare say even loving conversation about differences on race. W- what shaped your thinking over time? What helped you understand how to engage in this way that, I mean, J- John Powell, who's a guest, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, talks about bridging across differences and co-creating a better future. And I, you're nodding your head and smiling a lot. So I, I think we're connecting on that level. How did you get to this place? What made you a bridger? Yeah. So I would, it's so interesting. I wouldn't have called myself that. Um, but one of the members of the listserv, Brian Stout, who works with John Powell, gave me that name a couple of months ago. And I was like, I didn't even know that was a thing. Um, <laughs> it feels natural to me to uh, want to connect with people um, as a just a fundamental part of who I am as a, as a being. I am interested in being with other people, collaborating with other people. So I grew up in a number of places, but I'm from Los Angeles and I'm from um, South Central. And South Central in the 1980s and the 1990s was a pretty rough place for for people to live. The state was attacking black people in incredibly harmful ways, police violence. Um, you know, there was the war on poverty, the war on drugs, AIDS epidemic, crack epidemic. It had been completely forgotten by Hollywood also, right? Like completely overlooked. And so one of the things that I learned living in that community and then we moved to Ohio and then Kentucky and all these different places. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> my, my mom got remarried and <laughs> and I lived in, and then Louisiana for college and then New York was just that everywhere had similar problems in a different kind of frame. And to see the kind of the through lines and the humanity of people in different places for me taught me a lot about how to be with people. About my thinking, um, you know, I really struggled in college to figure out ways to be persuasive. I was very combative with my approach. And that was in part because I, you know, I grew up in places where we were constantly having to fight for our lives, fight for ourselves. And so, but that that tool that served me in my youth and my adolescence to fight for myself, for my own freedom, for the freedom of my family and people who look like me, for access to fundamental necessities, that didn't serve me as an adult, as a, as a communicator. And so I had to learn how to be persuasive in different ways, how to engage people in different ways. 
And so, you know, some of that came through failure. I would be in relationship with people, with other people I was building political power with and organizing with and would fail to connect because of tactics that were outdated or that didn't that didn't serve the relationship or work very well. Um, and I would have to learn from those experiences. So it was a lot of reflection is how I got here. Also realizing that I wasn't going to be able to connect with everybody that I needed to be mindful about how, you know, who I wanted to build with and how my approach would work with certain groups and and wouldn't work with others. But also the hard thing is like, how do I maintain my integrity of who I am at my core while also bridging with other people? This is really similar to what we think about in communications, right? How do you maintain the integrity of the message, of the value, of the core idea that you have while also trying to do a moral reframing in order to bring other people into the issue, so to make it appeal to them? And in that way, as a bridger, like being able to appeal to multiple people in multiple groups, that serves you know, my work and it serves the work of strategic communications in really fundamental ways. But I have to be careful to not lose myself in all of that. Mm-hmm. And how do you do that? How do you connect? There's this thing inside you that, that drives who you are. It didn't change. It doesn't change, I, I think. How you interpret it, how you express it might change. How... How do you think about that? How to make sure that you have that authentic self in there and still connect with audiences who may not necessarily start from the place where you are? Yeah. I mean, I think people can tell when you're authentic. Well, I know people can. So it's interesting to be right now just kind of watching what's unfolding politically and to see different candidates and their attitudes and how they've um, maintained a sense of integrity over many, many years. And I, I find that appealing. It takes personal transformation. I will just say that a personal commitment to knowing yourself and to standing in your values and to having that deep sense of integrity, even if people fundamentally disagree with you and to not being afraid of that disagreement. I used to be really afraid of disagreement. I used to be ashamed when people didn't agree with me. Like, you know, I was wrong or my ideas were bad. And that was just came from a a sense of insecurity that I had to get over. Uh, And that wasn't easy to do. Right. We all kind of socialized in the world to compare ourselves to other people to wonder if what we're doing is right and good enough. So I have, you know, I have been very um, committed to having a practice of of self-awareness and self-reflection. And so how I maintain my sense of self is doing that daily work of understanding my own biases, my prejudices, my faults, my blind spots, and also what's great about me. Um, And as a woman, I think it's really hard to understand what's great about you in a world that Mm -hmm. is continuously telling you that you're not good enough as a black woman, as a queer woman, as a person who grew up... um, you know, in a, in a in a home where my father was in prison, my mother was a single parent. Um, you know, and that and that changed later in life. But but having that sense of self requires uh, a daily commitment of practice, and also to realize that my personal life, my personal um, values, are not disconnected from my professional values. All of that stuff's interrelated. What do you tell young people who are getting into this work? I'm I, I I'm heartened. Because I see, I see a lot of young people, uh, people of color, people who come from a variety of backgrounds, who are getting into this work to 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 do good, and and I'm excited about that. I'm excited about the future, even though I'm a little worried about the present. How do you? And you teach them um, at the new school. How do you teach these young people about how to make a difference and about how to passion? You know, harness their passion. Mm 
What do you tell them? Yeah. I mean, I teach incoming freshmen at the new school in a social justice program. So this is all we talk about, right? And they they are, and they're, and I like the freshmen because they come in very excited, right? By the junior year, they are really tainted. And they, and these are kids who understand the role of power in the institution that they're in. They understand the role of power, uh, the lack of power they have as young people, right? That people kind of subjugate them to a particular, relegate them to a particular corner of this, of movement spaces. And like, they don't have big ideas that they, they are, they are aware of all of that. Um, and so, you know, I mean, the first thing I, I tell them is they need to learn how to make assessments. That's what we do first. You know, how do you assess what is happening around you? What tools do you have to determine what, how a situation is unfolding and what your proximity and privilege is in that situation, right? It, it starts with the self. Who am I? What is my relationship to the problem? And um, what is my responsibility to fixing it? And who has the power, right? And this is not this is not unlike what we do in social movement spaces, a power analysis, right? right and so, right, right. And but you know, you have to be able to sit down and say and um, and realize that there is no objectivity here. You have a place in in deciding how this shifts or how it doesn't shift, how how change happens. So we talk a lot about that. Um, you know, we we go through all the issues and try to examine them. How you know who who created the problem and how can we as individuals fix it? Um, and we as collect collectively as social movements fix the problems. Um, and then we just talk a lot about what, what it is that they believe is possible, you know, because with the great thing about young people's, you know, once they've figured out how the power, how power works, how to assess the problem is that they've got this infinite boundless energy to try to solve for it. And, you know, I'm 35, um, and I'm still very, very excited about the work, but I am definitely feeling the burnout and they don't have that just yet. So, you know, I, so I, we have honest conversations about what's going on. And similarly to what happens in Radcoms and what happens to my social movement, you know, political homes, we have a lot of conversations about our individual roles and responsibilities. And, um, and I just find, I just find the young people so inspiring and motivating. I've got one student who started the first black magazine on the new school campus. Really? Called Alchemy. Yeah. And she, she's the editor. She pulled together a set of writers and photographers and created it and fundraised for it by herself and had a kickoff party. And, you know, she's 19. She's 19 years old. So there, and we have, and I think, you know, I'll just say this to your listeners and, you know, um, we have to make a, a serious investment in young people because these are our future leaders. They're the people who are going to be running for office, who are going to be running our media institutions, who are going to be making the decisions for how we understand the information that comes to us. And so the more that we can prepare them to do that in a, um, in a skillful way, the better we'll, we'll all be. As Whitney Houston said, I believe the children are our future. Yes, she was correct. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, George Benson said it before that. Okay. <laughs> Wow. Great minds. (laughs) Great minds indeed. (laughs) What, um, you, you, nine or 10 years is a a quick amount of time to get to, to get from LSU to here. Um, I'm just stammering. So just, yeah, (laughs) but, but how did you do that? How it take, it must take a sense of self, uh, just, an understanding about what you're capable of. What did you tap into to get from there to here? Yeah. I mean, I, I, the most important thing is that I did not do this by myself. I did not, um, and get, you know, getting here, I, I, I feel, I feel a sense of, um, success, if you will, in that I found what I love to do. Right. And not that I have 
by any means transcended being the best at it. I'm still figuring it out every single day. Um, so, you know, there were a lot of people who supported me in getting here, who allowed me in positions to um, make decisions and and try things and fail at things. Um, the one person who comes to mind is Evelyn Shen, who's the executive director of Forward Together. Um, she gave me my first communications job in, in social justice, and I didn't what know was what I job? was doing. I was a communications manager for this reproductive justice organization. What was it called? Uh, for it was called for, Forward oh, Together. Oh, okay, yeah. okay, Forward that's right. okay, yeah. great. And um, and I, you know, she, I was. I used to really feel like ashamed when I didn't know what I was doing and I wouldn't tell anybody I didn't know what I was doing. So I would just be tinkering in my office, pretending in some instances like I knew what I was doing. And obviously it would come out, you know, (laughs) some weeks or months (laughs) down the line. And she was just so kind. She would just, you know, you, it's okay for you to tell us if you don't know how to do something. And I think that seeing her, seeing that part of me, that humanity, my humanity in that way and not, firing me or not shaming me about that. I mean, that allowed me the, oh, okay, like I'm allowed to try something and then fail at it. Uh, another person is Sujatha J. Sudasan, who's a mentor of mine. She's a faculty at the new school now, and that was not related at all to my going there. We just both happened to be there. But she um, she taught me the fundamentals of design thinking, of of experimentation, of prototyping. And, you know, that for me is like, is how I run through my life now, right? I try something out. If it doesn't work out, I don't stay too long because um, that's another thing, right? Uh, You know, being willing to see where something is not serving you, where a position isn't serving you or a role and stepping away from it. The other thing is um, that I've messed up a lot. (laughs) I've messed up a lot. You know, I've I've made the wrong decisions. I've gotten into conflict with people um, and not been a graceful participant. I have... um, I've left roles too early feeling, you know, like I had learned enough and just being an arrogant 20 something. Um, and it's those kind of moments where, yeah, I feel a deep sense of shame about them and turn that shame into something productive and, you know, try to keep it moving. But I think, yes, it's a self-awareness about what I want to do and what I don't want to do in, in the world. Um, it's the idea that I actually, I feel I would, I have in the past felt incredibly pigeonholed by a single position at an organization, right? So being, you know, the comm strategist at the ACLU was very enlightening. I learned so much and I could have learned so much more had I stayed longer and just really studied under some of the, 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 the professionals who worked there. Um, but I also felt very, I felt very, it felt very narrow and very reductive. I, I felt like I wanted to do more things and have my hands in more things. And that is something I also felt like, should I be ashamed about that? That I'm the kind of person who just wants to dabble in a ton of different things. And I don't feel shame about that anymore. I mean, I feel excited by that, you know? Um, and it has its limitations, of course, right? Because then you're doing a bunch of things at, at at some small percentage of your capacity and nothing at 100%. But, you know, but I mean, I think it's about figuring out what you're good at. And I think the other thing is um, creating the things that you, you know, you see are needed. So I am very good at big vision. I can see something and uh, try to figure out how to pull it all together. I'm not good at the details, right? This is why. Oh, we're the same person. <laughs> we have to have a team. People wouldn't know it, but you and I are the same person. <laughs> and so that, but that's what's great about collaboration is that you get to build with people who love the details and are very good at figuring that out and who don't care so much for the big vision or who don't have that capacity. So Radcoms is actually a creation of that, that the uh, desire of mine to want to create something that I needed and didn't exist before. 
Um, and so, you know, yes, nine years is very quick. And it's so funny because when I tell people all the stories of all the jobs I've had and all the things that I've done, they're like, wow, like how old are you? How? And it's just like, <laughs> I'm like, I feel like I've lived a million lives in my 35 years, you know? And in that way, I feel like I'm getting the most out of it. Well, I'm on my fifth comeback, I think. Nice. I'm a multiple has-been. <laughs> Actually, in cancel culture, I've been canceled, literally, by NBC, because I was on a TV show that got canceled. So, Oh, wow. Yeah, so you know about that. Yeah. Me cancel culture <laughs> happened in 1982. <laughs> but I don't want to talk about it. Last question. So how do people sign up, get involved in, in Radcoms, first of all? Because I yeah. think that a lot of folks will benefit from it. People can visit um, radcomsnetwork.org, um, and you can sign up from there. We also have an Instagram uh, Radical Communicators Network and Facebook. Um, and just to say a couple of things that people could get involved in if they join join the listserv. So we, we, we do professional development for strategic communicators, uh, for people working in digital, pollsters, anybody who's working in communications related to social movements. And so we provide monthly kind of peer-led sessions on different topics. We recently did an analysis of, analysis of global protest messaging. So we wanted to see where the themes were across, uh, I think I looked at 30 countries um, that had held protests over the last year. Um, we did one on consulting, fundamentals of consulting. We have so many consultants and so many new people who don't know how to file their taxes or who, and I mean, I, I, this was this was really important to me because when I first started consulting, I undersaved for the IRS by like ten grand, Ooh. and it took me so long to pay that off, and Ow. I didn't want anybody else to do that. So, so the professional development part of it is like both the fundamentals of how to do our job and also the strategy and analysis portions of that. We're also writing a book, so we Ooh, um, really yeah we we oh, cool. are, haven't really announced it to very many people yet. Um, so you're one of the first persons to hear hey. it. Hey, person to hear it. Um, but we are the the radical guide to strategic communication. Uh, or social change communications, we're still figuring out a title, um, will be a primer. That's a blend of academic theory and case studies from the field. So um, I'll write a chapter on on the, the communication strategies of Black Lives Matter. Marjana Zakowska, who's my co-editor of the book, will write something on um, National Domestic Workers Association, where she led the earned media strategy. Chelsea Fuller for the Me Too movement. So it's a very um, exciting book, and we're really grateful to the Rockefeller Brothers Fund and also to Borealis for helping us pull that together. How cool. When is it coming out? Yeah, so it's a two-year project, so it'll be a while yet. We've just put together an advisory committee of people to help make sure that we do it right. And we have a lot of questions about what right looks like. But again, filling the gap where you think you needed it, I would have loved a book, a primer that taught me what messaging worked for specific movements and what didn't work and how to poll people and how to develop social media content that is effective. And so that's what we're hoping this book will do. Wow, I can't wait. Honestly, yeah. I really can't wait. And the third thing is, which we'll announce this week, is that we're going to have a conference this year. So it'll be um, a California-based conference in the winter after the election um, where people who believe in narrative power building and organizing as a as a necessity towards social change uh, will come together to debate and ideate on strategies that we need to make our social movements better. Excellent. Well, we'll definitely plug that when it's great. When it is, it's not announced yet, though, right? It's not announced yet. Well, not right. this week, but it'll it'll be happening in November, or December. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, and then let's. So, and you you have a your website is hellochanel.com. Hellochanel.com. Yeah. What 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 else should we plug while we have this? While I've got you.
Well, I couldn't agree with you more. Thank you so much, Chanel. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to meet you. I'm, I'm, I'm just so happy I got a chance to sit down and talk with you. Thank you, Eric. I appreciate it. Thanks again. And welcome back, oh, Mr. Brown. So the Frank Conference has been a profitable uh, journey to, you know, a, a profitable contributor to the podcast this year, I would say. It was a journey of discovery for guests. Yes. <laughs> Finally. There, there were some great folks there, and I had the opportunity to pull them aside and have really cool conversations. This is the first time in our podcast that I've really confronted uh, envy on the podcast. That Chanel's trajectory, what she's accomplished, the work that she's doing... It actually made me feel bad about myself. I felt like I wasn't contributing enough. And then she actually helped well, me. You just have to try harder. Well, and then she actually helped me reconsider. She was like, you know, we don't have to feel shame for what we don't, don't know how to do. And I was like, I love that. Thank you for saying that, Chanel. But I'm like, Chanel Matthews, you're absolutely the answer. Like everything about what you're doing and how you're thinking about it, this is also right. So let's start with Radcom. You know, Radcom, the Radcom network, and uh, I guess Radcom's network is the way to say it. Right. What's your view into that? It sounds like you're on the list. You've witnessed some of the conversations that have taken place there. Um, just talk about that community and, and the contribution it's making to the work because it sounds amazing. It is a forum for people to learn from each other. Of course, they also do trainings and they're doing other work around narrative shift and things like that. So Radcoms provides a set of tools for people who are working on kind of progressive social change communications. And it is also a forum that has, it is a very, very lively forum. It's a listserv, uh, like <laughs> old school listserv. That's, I love that. That's so awesome. In which people are having very interesting conversations. And then so a lot of his news you can use for consultants that are learning how to, you know, do their taxes and things like that. But as, as you heard, really getting into it on important topics around talking about this work, uh, learning about how to how to communicate and hashing out differences or trying to kind of find ways to bridge across differences. And as you, as you also heard, it isn't always possible to do that with total satisfaction. And that yeah. is also a fact of life. Yeah. It's funny. I was listening to that whole thread. And, I, you know, one of the things as a parent that I've kind of had to come to terms with is what I think of as like the happy sorry moment. It's like you're so sorry something happens, but you're kind of happy it happens because of the learning that comes along mm -hmm. with it. And um, it feels like in, in the one instance you guys were talking about that Shannon was really, there's a grace and a care to how she's handling this, you know, this set of conversations. And then she's also unpacking the depth and the richness of what's going on in all the parts. And and again, there's a way of seeing all the different levels happening in real time that Chanel is able to bring to it that is really extraordinary, you know, and it just makes me feel like that we all need to be on this listserv, you know yeah. what I mean, like, and listening in. Um, you walk and talk through her own journey into the work, and um, I think that after she's done with this current book that she's working on that's going to take two years, I'd like the next book to be called L.A. to Baton Rouge, uh -huh. the Chanel Matthews story. But yeah, what, do you take New York. <laughs> what do you take about that um, that trajectory she went through? Because you commented on it. I mean, she's, I think, it's, um, you know, nine years doing communications. I mean, you know, that's, that's relatively speaking, a, a, it's a great, tr you know, trajectory, but it's not the decades that some of the folks we've had on the podcast have brought to it. And yet the nuance and the depth of the work she's doing is really extraordinary. I think it's, well, it, it's gratifying to me that uh, Chanel's voice and the voice of many of, of uh, other people, you know, relatively young people are being heard now in ways that they haven't before. I just think that that's so important for our work. It's important for our future. It makes me feel better about 
the prospects of your daughters and my daughter's lives. Hmm. And I, I think that represents a shift. I honestly think that 10 years ago even, you, we, we just didn't have access to that kind of energy, talent, and life experience. Mm. And as, as you hear, Chanel's life experience was, um, there, there were challenges in it. And mm-hmm. the experiences that she felt at college were clearly ones that have shaped what she, where she has gone on to, to go uh, and the things that she's doing. So that, I, I just think that's, that's, it's important. It's valuable. It was clearly not easy I hope that people have uh, who who previously hadn't had nearly the kind of opportunity to sh- help shape our society are getting that chance, and it, so it, it's really valuable. I I really really appreciate what she's doing. <clears throat> what she's doing. I liked your exchange about bridging and uh, bridging across difference and. Uh, you you called her a bridger, and it sounded like uh, you got a smile that elicited a response <laughs> from Chanel immediately. And uh, talk to me a little bit about that. I have to say, I've been through these series of discussions we've heard on the podcast about bridging. The thing that I just keep coming back to is the generosity, it seems, and the rigor that's required in that process. Um, you know, and I was just thinking, man, bridging, like, sitting on this, or I don't know what, swimming in this ocean of privilege and not being able to even understand how much it informs your total worldview. And now somebody's going to bridge to me and bring me out of that morass and actually into a better place so I can communicate with a greater connection and more effectiveness. There's so much that goes into that role. Is And again, I keep having these these fantasy you know, views about people gathering who have this capacity. And again, the Radcoms conference that's coming in 2020, maybe this is a place where that's going to be happening. But um, yeah, tell me about the bridging conversation. What was that like? Or did, what are your views on it? And you've had a chance to reflect on it through a couple of different conversations with folks. Yeah, obviously, we had one with Ben, we had one with John, uh, ben, so Ben McBride and, and John Powell. Uh, and the idea, th- these, these are definitely exchanges. These are bridging across differences. And the difference can be uh, just life experience in a variety of ways or gender or uh, a, a variety of other things that represent difference and it it to to my mind it, it it involves an exchange of people who are willing to share something that is uncomfortable that mm-hmm. represents their own admission that they don't see the full picture mm-hmm. an interest in learning more and a willingness to kind of expose something in yourself that you don't know about or maybe are worried or nervous or you don't know how it's going to land. And then in the receiver, it's a generosity in understanding, listening, yeah. uh, listening carefully and not making people feel bad for something that either they aren't or they don't know or they haven't done. Yeah. Or, uh, and that's, boy, oh boy, that can be really, really challenging oh. and uh, intimidating and people... Are, can be ex- can be forgiven for not wanting to have those conversations, but once you do, that, I mean that's how you learn. It's how, and that's how you build. You know, it's how you create co-create a better future. If people feel like they're that they have something to offer and that their that their um, ideas are heard and felt in the spirit with which they are offered, mm-hmm. then you can get somewhere. Well, and I liked how um, Chanel 
was very clear too that there's a real intersection between her work, her work life, the journey she's been on professionally, her own personal journey, but also, um, you know, she talks about this process of personal transformation, that all these things are very much connected for her. And that when she talked about figuring out ways to be persuasive without being combative, I was like, yes, there it is, you know, and, um, but it, 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 she talks about, but we grew up fighting for our lives, you know, we were fighting to be seen people didn't, you know, fighting for people who looked like us. Um, she talked about all the stuff at, uh, I think it was LSU where she went, is mm-hmm. that right? All of the missing pieces that activated her own activism there in terms of the issues that she was trying to address. But, but that in her own story, she's saying this learning for me came through failure, you know, that I was willing to actually, you know, be in relationship, fail to connect. Um, that piece about how we're willing to learn the vulnerability required to learn, we're going to fall off the bike before we learn to ride the bike. It just made me think about this whole thing about cancel culture, but we need to be willing to say the wrong thing at times and learn from that or have the wrong thought at times and learn from that. It feels like Chanel is actually moving the needle on that, you know, like creating spaces for these kinds of conversations to happen and for real change to take place. And I, again, I'm just like, whoa, this is the quality of the thinking, the quality of the work and the quality of the person who's doing this. It just, it left off, it left off the interview for me in terms of the conversation you guys had. Yeah. And I, I, again, this is, it's a weird conversation that like you and I are just sitting here, two, two guys, <laughs> you know, we have, we have, we have no uh, melanin. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, like you get any whiter than us, you, you're blue. Uh, you, so disappear. you disappear. You vanish. <laughs> like, Kirk, you can't stand next to a white wall. No, I can't. Nor can I go outside. Actually, you can't stand next to a pink wall. Yeah, right. More fair. <laughs> uh, and and yeah, and yet, I mean, I I, I want to learn. I, I don't. Wanna, we need to learn I wanna, desperately. I want to do better. Yeah. I want to make the world a better place. I want, and I understand. I understand what I understand and I just want to do that. And and that's, and the fact that, um, okay, A, we, uh, Chanel and, and other colleagues are, are eager to have that conversation in a, in a way that is bridges across differences and co-creates a better future. I said it's a Korean times, but I believe it to be true. I, I hope has value to our, our collective work. And the fact that like two, two white guys can hit, sit here talking about it, uh, and if if people receive that in the spirit with which it is offered, which is one of trying to do well, then then great. And there may be some people who who uh, have a different experience, and that's okay. But you know, we're, we're, we're gonna give it a shot. Uh, you know, we're occupying a space that's being created by the people that are having the conversations with you about this, right? I mean, that that to me is what's so incredible about it. It's like like there's room here for us to have this discussion because we're being invited into it, and like you know, how well are we going to do? What what biases do we have? What et cetera because of our background? Well, we'll see. We'll have that all sort out. But but the, but the invitation to engage is, I think, to what's you know what's just wonderful about it. You know, and there's there's so much transformative opportunity in that. It seems like because that that connection, that connectivity, it feels like it can grow. You know, it's not yeah. just one, it's not just two people, it grows and grows. And so this notion about the learning. So I want to find out if Chanel's course is online at the new school Ooh. and I want to take it, you know, because um, <laughs> she talks she about- She teaches freshmen. You're going to have to enroll. I, I, fine. Let's start over. 
let's roll the tape back because and this is I love that you know she's working with freshmen in the social justice program and she's like I love working with the freshmen because by the time they're juniors <laughs> they're the jaded, teaching the jaded juniors <laughs> but we've been talking about this right like how important it is to embrace this next generation of people create opportunities um you know hand over all of our lessons <laughs> learned so they can look at the record edit delete you know take out what isn't working but you know keep the parts that do and and Chanel's living that as part of her work at the new school. Again, I was just, and by the way, at one point in my life, I almost went to the new school for uh, graduate work and it's it's like one of those, you know, different paths, you know, I've always just beloved the new school, you know, so it's good. She's there. She's teaching. It's just amazing. It's a really cool thing. It it really is a cool thing. And like I said, I, I was so looking forward to that conversation and I, I hope that people got something out of it. I certainly did. She's uh, so dynamic. I, I know that we will all be turning to her for advice and and ideas and and real leadership. Yeah. As as things progress, because she just does have a, a both a life experience, but a set of tools that that everyone can can benefit from. Well, and on that tools count, and this is the last thing, and then we'll go. Um, part of that coursework she described is the first thing she works with them on. Is she tells them how to make assessments. She mm-hmm. tells them how to do that evaluative work around change and what change you're trying to make and what's your role in it. And as she continues doing her writing, maybe she's already done it, but I hope she codifies that in some way that it becomes actually not just new school curricula, not just for the kids in her classroom, but, but that people like us, people everywhere can have access to that um, thinking in that rigor, because again, it, it just, it just feels really tremendous. Well, Chanel, man, thank you for joining us. Um, hello, Chanel.com. The radcomsnetwork.org is how you get involved with um, that listserv. And um, we'll be looking forward to the conference. So I, I want to make a pitch. Okay, pitch. I think we should Here's try to pitch. send you or me to the conference and either grab people for interviews in the hallways right. or right. even live podcast out of the conference. Or even better, hopefully Chanel and her team will be doing some live podcasting out of the Ooh, uh, that'd be fun Because, right, let's, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are people that are in other parts of the country that could benefit tremendously from the conversations that are happening there that may or may not have the ability to um, get all the way to California, yeah. wherever it's going to be held. And and we'll be looking forward to the book. Yeah. Write your book, do your podcast, throw your conference. Hey, and one more thing. I have an, one one more pitch, which is uh, for, for folks who are uh, familiar with the Communications Network, Clarence B. Jones, Leadership uh, Impact Award. They are about there. The time is open. The nomination period is open now for folks to nominate their communications campaign that they think deserves to be recognized. So if you have someone to nominate, absolutely go ahead and do it at uh, jonesaward.org. And just another way to remind us all that communications actually can make a difference. Awesome. Um, well, thank you, Eric. What a great interview. Chanel Matthews, thank you for joining us. And thanks, everybody, for listening in to Let's Hear It. Let's hear it. Okay, everybody, that's it for this episode. Please let us know if you have any thoughts about what you heard today or people we should have on this show. And that definitely includes yourself. And we'd like to thank our indefatigable producer, Harper Brown. John Ali, the tuneful and inspiring composer of our theme music. Our sponsor, the Lumina Foundation. And please check out Lumina's terrific podcast, Today's Students, Tomorrow's Talent, and you can find that at luminafoundation.org. We certainly thank today's guest, and of course, all of you. And most importantly, thank you, Mr. Brown. Oh, no, 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 no. Thank you, Mr. Brown. (laughs) Okay, everybody. Until next time.